Welcome to On the Continent at the World Cup. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. I'm Jonathan Johnson. On this World Cup edition, Messi or PSG? Whose World Cup is it so far? Also, after France's reserves lose to Tunisia, will the real world champions now stand up in the knockout stage? And what about Spain? With one match to go in their group stage, can they pass their way into real, not real, contention? Andy, welcome back from Qatar. How was it? Uh, it was interesting, uh, that's for sure. Uh, unusual. Um, the football was was pretty good, but obviously the, the, the tournament as a whole is really quite surreal. And um, yeah, we won't have another World Cup like it, that's for sure. Yeah, and you rode through the desert with on a horse with no name. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm just checking, just checking. Let's kick off, though. We're talking about Wednesday. Wednesday evening in particular for us here in the UK at the World Cup. This was the maddest night ever. Did you have your finger on the red button? A lot happened, didn't it? I, rather than watching both the games, because as you know, I'm a prolific watcher of multiple games at, at once, Don. It's the World Cup, so I've decided to park that. I decided to live it simply through the nervous faces and performances of the Polish team as they clung on for dear life against uh, Argentina and, well, just about got there. Just about got there in the end, Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it, it was pretty hairy at uh, at one moment. I just love the way that once they realised you had the the count uh, on the yellow cards going down, Poland immediately opted to bring uh, Krakowiak off the pitch just to <laughs> safeguard their chances. Do you, do you want to explain that for those who don't know? Because I felt sorry for the Mexicans because there was nothing they could do about the yellow cards they'd already had. But apparently, if they they were going to come out with the same result. Um, or at least the same amount of points and the same amount of goal difference as uh, Poland, it's going to it'll be down to the yellow cards, essentially. Do, do you mind explaining that? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously the you know the, the sort of head-to-head and everything was was balanced up until the point where we were discussing potential drawing of lots. Uh, you know, should the <clears throat> should the yellow card or the the fair play count, so to so to speak. I mean, I don't know whether we can call it fair play when you look at some of the shenanigans that went on uh, in Poland's <laughs> performance. You've got Szczesny coming out after the match as well, telling us that he uh, he bet Messi a uh, hundred euros that the the penalty wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be given, and then he's worried about getting a ban for admitting <laughs> that publicly. So you know there was a, there was a lot going on. Poland definitely engaged in the in the dark arts. Obviously, that Saudi Arabia goal late on settled it, so we didn't actually have to worry or get into that. But uh, I think there was a World Cup moment as well from years and years ago, probably before I was even born, where the drawing of lots actually did come in. I think it involved the Netherlands and the Republic of Ireland. Talking of Messi, and that is one of the subjects we'll kick off this wider conversation with. He missed a penalty. <laughs> is it the same Messi? Because it seemed like it took him a long time to get into this World Cup. Is he where you would expect him to be at the moment, Jonathan? I think there is a lot of expectation on Messi, obviously. Um, it's been very clear since the beginning of the season with PSG, came back a week early for pre-season training, that Messi's first half of the season, Neymar's as well, to be fair, uh, has been built around participation in the World Cup. And Messi is, you know, an absolutely 
different quality player uh, to the one that we saw in his first season with uh, with PSG. Back close to being something uh, of the Messi of old. Uh, and obviously he hasn't shown that from the penalty spot so far. But otherwise, you know, he does look a lot sharper uh, you know, than, than we've seen from him in recent years. You know, his final season with Barcelona wasn't the best, you know, the occasional flash of brilliance, but nothing sort of sustained, not nearly, uh, you know, close to his former self. Uh, and then, you know, a, a pretty disappointing start with uh, with PSG, but then suddenly exploded to life uh, and has been one of the most productive and, and consistent performers in that star-studded PSG side. So it's it's not a surprise to see him featuring uh, you know, um, in a in a key way for Argentina so far this World Cup, but I am I am surprised he opted to put himself up for the penalty once again, having missed the one in the in the first uh, the first one. Yeah, you know, we always welcome your contributions to on the continent. So a reminder that you can tweet us at football ramble at Dotton Adibayo at Andy Brassel and at John underscore Le Gossip especially during this World Cup period, as this from Colin. I think this is the essential question, Andy. Colin tweets us asking, is Messi worse at taking penalties than Ronaldo is at taking free kicks? <laughs> I see what you're getting at, Colin, but clearly not. Um, you have to say the Szczesny save was, was, was brilliant. It was a really, really great save. And Szczesny is one of the best penalty savers out there. He is. Um, he is. As, as, his as Arsenal well. days. You yeah, and it, well, he certainly has been at a, a Juventus. He's hard to beat from the penalty spot um, without all the skullduggery that, that JJ was talking about before. I, th- I think the interesting thing with Messi, and I think you, t- you take that out of it, even prime Messi is a relatively prolific misser of penalties. You know, I think if you look at um, his his penalty percentage throughout his career, it's not nearly as high as as you would expect, and it feeds into, for example, all Tim Vickery's prejudices against <laughs> left-footed penalty takers, even the greatest left-footer of them all. But I have to say, I think there are two sides to Messi's growing form in this tournament. In the last two games, and I thought especially last night against Poland, he was brilliant. Mm. He, he, he was. You know, we, we can't be saying peak Messi because that that is big language to be throwing a, a, a around. Uh, but he feels more than useful Messi, essential to what Argentina are trying to do, Messi. And I think there are two angles to it. Firstly, going into what Jonathan was saying, having had a thorough preseason, and what we're seeing with Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment, who had a very truncated preseason, you cannot, even if you're the best player or near the best player in the world, you cannot survive without that particularly when you're going into your late 30s. It, it just won't do. And we, we saw that in the first half of last season with Leo Messi. Of course, it's interesting as well, the fact that he has tended in recent seasons, I think you look at the back end of last season with PSG, or as we said, there are very particular reasons to that. And certainly the last two seasons at Barcelona, much better in the second half of the season than he was in the first half of the season. Whereas in the first half of this season, he's been flames. He's been absolutely terrific and he's brought that into the the world cup the second part of that though has to do i think with the choices of Lionel Scaloni because the players he has brought in around Messi Messi has always needed the legs for a long time now now we've talked about Cristiano Ronaldo and you know his declining physical state or the, the declining amount of running that he does and you know i, th- I think that's been part of portugal and Real Madrid and Juventus's game plan. He, he wants the ball at his feet now, doesn't he? He does want it t- 10 yards ahead. There's no, there's no <laughs> doubt about it, but Messi drops to get the ball and is not necessarily able to accelerate from mm. the centre circle 
as he used to be. So if you go all the way back to, what, 2014, Barcelona go all in on Neymar and Luis Suarez, who was prime Luis Suarez then, to have the legs to carry Messi. And it worked. And now, I think as we're getting deeper into this World Cup, I think replacing Lautaro Martinez, who's a great player, with a player who's more Messi compatible maybe in Julian Alvarez. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is part of it. You look at the way they've reconstituted the midfield. It feels as if, not I don't know if, if you can even say Messi's growing into the tournament, but the, the right team is beginning to grow around Messi now, which is enabling him to have a more influential tournament. Which I suppose, JJ, is a far cry from the opening match, Argentina's opening match against Saudi Arabia. Are we looking now at a player who has played 22 World Cup matches? This is just phenomenal, actually. Uh, He's played more World Cup matches than the great Diego Maradona, who he is constantly compared with. Um, are, Are we saying that he is growing into this tournament Maybe because he realises this is his moment, although he should have realised it before. But he's coming off the back of an unbeaten run by Argentina and suddenly they they lose to Saudi Arabia. That would have knocked the stuffing out of him. But he's managed to pick himself up in some way. Is, Is that because of his legacy or is it because, you know, his feet are doing what his feet are supposed to be doing at the moment? I think there's a lot to be said about the mental focus that some teams like Argentina and Brazil have brought into this World Cup. You can see that they are absolutely... Uh, you know, believing in their chances to to go all the way and win. I mean, I think as well, a lot of it is this kind of narrative that Messi himself has uh, fed in the build-up to the World Cup, where he's been, you know, talking this up as his last World Cup. I know that in one of his final interviews just before the tournament got underway, he did leave the door slightly ajar for potentially an appearance in 2026. But most part of of what he's been saying has been, uh, you know, suggesting that this will be his final World Cup. And that, I think, has aided... Uh, you know, sort of his motivation, but also Argentina's collective motivation as well to to help him get there. I think as well, Messi has finally embraced, um, you know, the fact that this Argentina team, in order to succeed, in order for him to win the World Cup title that he craves, you know, it has to function as a collective. It can't just be built up to serve him. Uh, You know, and now he is now part of a, a functioning collective unit. Whereas Argentina before... You know, they were on the international stage looking a bit like how PSG look on the on the club scene, where it's a collection of really, really talented individuals, but they didn't always blend, uh, you know, into the strongest uh, strongest team. And I think that Messi and his teammates now, you know, they really believe that together, uh, you know, they can actually uh, win this World Cup. And, you know, with Messi sort of suggesting that it'll be his final one, it adds that sense of urgency that might, you know, just push them all away. There's already a lot of pressure on the Argentinian team. You would have seen that firsthand. As I said somewhat cheekily at the beginning of the programme, is this Messi's World Cup or is it PSG's? Because they've gotten him into shape, essentially. Obviously, they want him in shape for their own reasons. But Argentina is essentially benefiting from that, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I, I think just as as JJ was saying, as... Um... Brazil are from, from Neymar, or what were, until he got injured anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it, it is interesting. We talked about it before the, the, the tournament, the fact that you have the, the, the host country essentially owning three of the premier players in it, in Mbappe, 
Messi and, and Neymar is, is completely unprecedented. And I think particularly with Qatar having that difficult start to the World Cup, which is now all over for them, mm-hmm. um, the way that crowds have responded to Mbappe when I've been at France's matches, for example, is particularly remarkable. Now, the way that crowds respond to Messi and Neymar, they would respond to them anywhere in the world. Now, maybe that's the case with Mbappe as well, but we're not quite used to it because, you know, he's still only 23 years old. So he's not as... We know he's, if not the best player in the world at present, really, really close, Mbappe. But he's not as embedded in our culture and there's not this... Our football culture. And there's not a a necessity for this outpouring of love and gratitude that particularly Messi gets everywhere he goes. Now, we saw the pressure and how he felt it with the way he reacted after that goal against Mexico, but mm-hmm. which I still think is one of the most beautiful moments of the tournament, just seeing the emotion absolutely overwhelming. And, and JJ was talking about the psychological side, but which I agree is, is absolutely huge. But I do feel that you look at the atmosphere at those Argentina games, which has been partly due to those travelling Argentina fans who've come across like 17 hours on a flight from, from Buenos Aires to, to Doha. But the collective atmosphere of the tournament, it just seems that I don't I don't think it's um I don't think it's something that's over the top to say it's lifting Messi up that mm. that little bit higher as well. It, it can't not. Yeah, you say that, but then you get this cheeky question, Jonathan, from Zena on Instagram. Will Messi retire when Argentina lose to Australia? <laughs> Come on, well, don't I mean... laugh. You'd have <laughs> laughed if you'd said, will Messi retire if Saudi, uh, Argentina lose to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah. yeah true, you're true. not laughing now, true, are you? True. Well, I'll tell you what, if uh, this tournament has taught us anything, then Messi definitely shouldn't step up to take a penalty of Redmayne's between the sticks <laughs> for Australia. Because, <laughs> you know, they've already come up against some penalty kings in Chesney, Ochoa. You know, Redmayne as well has the, you know, the potential to thwart Messi there. So I think, you know, if he wants to, if, if he wants to make sure that his legacy remains intact, if there is the chance of a, a shock exit to, to Australia, then he definitely should pass the penalty on to one of his teammates. But realistically, I mean, to be honest, I, I already feel a bit stupid because I slammed Australia's chances pre-tournament. I think I said in a, in, a, in a podcast elsewhere that Australia were lucky to even qualify, uh, you know, based on how they got in and just should make the most of being there. So to see them suddenly get out of the group stage and now come up against Argentina uh, is, is, is pretty incredible. And I don't really want to write them off, but it does feel like it's quite a favourable draw for, for Argentina and Messi. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. 
But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ramble. Let's talk about France, because what we saw again on Wednesday night was France fielding... Oh, you don't think it was their second team, Andy? Maybe their third, given all the injuries. That, their third that, team. That, that, that have happened. It was woeful, though. It was, it, was a, it was a scratch team. Yeah, it was a scratch team. They um, managed to lose to Tunisia, but obviously they'd already done enough to get through to the knockout stages. Um, and Denmark was one the team that paid the price uh, for, well, the uh, unravelling of that group. However, uh, France, the world champions, have taken a knock, I suppose, to their egos, but also to the perception, the fear factor when people face them, Jonathan, that they're the world champions, they seem unbeatable, they've got Mbappe with them, how are you going to stop him, etc. But there's a chink in their armour now. How will that affect the progress through these knockout stages for France? I mean, I think there's a number of ways to, ways to look at it. I mean, we know that Mbappe uh, was nursing a knock, so it would have been a risk had, had Deschamps thrown him in. Uh, I do think the one thing that, you know, all of this, uh, you know, um, changing of players and uh, this deep rotation that Deschamps, uh, you know, went with uh, against Tunisia, it does show that he is wary now that there is a lack of depth in certain positions. I mean, experimenting with Eduardo Camavinga at left-back, which... Was was a disastrous outing for for the Real midfielder. It's uh, you know I think many people now realise that you know there is a, a major importance on the likes of uh, Theo Hernandez, who obviously replaced uh, his brother Luca, who unfortunately got injured in that opening game against Australia. Uh, you know, so I don't think there's necessarily going to be too many people thinking that France's confidence will have been knocked by this result in the fact that many of the players who have started, you know, the key performers, uh, you know, weren't really involved, certainly weren't involved from the start uh, of that game. But, uh, you know, there is a feeling that, you know, France France's chances of going all the way is perhaps only as good as their starting eleven. There doesn't seem to be sort of that collective, that same collective strength that they had in, uh, in, in 2018, for sure. I think that's it really, isn't it, Jonathan? If you listen to and read the French media this morning, it does seem a little bit what happens if X gets injured. You know, we've only got three midfielders. We've only got um, one yeah. one left back. Now, Luca is injured and it's, and it, and it's, it's down to Teo. So it does feel a little bit... I, I'm sure the team don't feel that, mm. but but certainly there are members of the media and the, the, the public who think we're walking on eggshells because if, if someone gets injured, we could be in trouble. And I think really what we saw in the Euros last year Jonathan, is that Didier Deschamps has many strings to his bow. Working out a solution on the spot is, is very much not one of them, as that Camavinga experiment um, showed. And it was, it was a little bit like trying Rabiot at left wing back in the first half against Switzerland in the, in the last 16. But fortunately, in this case, in a, in a game that didn't really count that much. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as well that um, points to a bigger problem for France. And I, I say a bigger problem. Obviously, we know that France uh, are stacked, uh, you know, in terms of young talent pretty much across the board, uh, you know, for, for the next decade or so. But there has been a dearth now for quite a while of really good right back and left back options. And I think the fact that, you know, you've seen Deschamps experimenting with guys like Jules Koundé at right back in the past. You know, obviously he plays Benjamin Pavard there and Pavard is not really a natural right back either. Uh, and then he's experimenting with guys like Rabiot now, Kemavinga as well uh, at left back. It shows, you know, especially when you look at the amount of central defenders he's put in that squad, uh, you know, that there isn't perhaps a, as much confidence in those areas of the pitch. But, uh, you know, I do think that, you know, one other thing, I guess, that, that you could perhaps use to balance out that argument that Deschamps is not particularly the strongest at reacting on the fly, certainly in terms of, uh, you know, um, finding new players to fill in uh, in those positions where depth is, is, is a bit lacking is the fact that Deschamps is a fantastic manager when it comes to being in a tournament. He's very pragmatic. And I think he would have looked at that game against Tunisia and said, it doesn't matter what the result is, we will rotate uh, as many players as we can, keep them fresh, avoid potential injuries, uh, you know, so that our strongest eleven, you know, which now includes Rabiot in, in midfield as the most experienced member of that unit, uh, you know, for the, for the knockout stage, you know, Deschamps absolutely prioritised that. Uh, you know, now I think the, the the pressure will be on those players to pick up where they left off uh, against uh, Denmark, knowing that they they'd already lost that game against Tunisia, which I believe was their first tournament defeat since the final of Euro twenty sixteen on home soil against Portugal. Before we do Denmark, actually, Dutton, because JJ makes a good point there, we have to we have to get onto them and what what happened to them. Uh, the Antoine Griezmann equaliser that didn't count. Have you seen that um, the French FA have made a representation to FIFA to complain about that? It's a hard one, though, isn't it? It's a hard one because it's pass and move, pass and move. He's yeah, waiting for the but, cross and he's moving. But, but the problem is, it's, it's not that. The reason they've complained is because Tunisia took the kickoff and then they went to VAR. Which is completely, completely yes, against yes. the rules. So even if the goal Guys, itself is, I, is absolutely Can I debatable. jump in and add some context to this? Because the funniest thing about all of this is the majority of French viewers didn't know any of this was happening because TF1, <laughs> yes. the, the, the domestic they broadcaster, went to an advert. Go on, free, sorry. free to air, had, had cut to an, uh, an advert just as the referee was doing the VAR check. So nobody actually knew uh, you know, whether the goal had been cancelled or not. So a bunch of people went off into the night, you know, go out for drinks, go out for dinner, assuming that France had, had tied it and remained unbeaten in the World Cup and then probably came home to find out that the goal had actually been chalked up. They haven't got home yet they're still out there look I, I, don't, I don't want to get stuck into match officials i never want to get stuck into match officials it's a really hard job but i think with that and actually with the bruno fernandes penalty for portugal against uruguay mm -hmm. where jose Jimenez got penalized for that handball in the most obvious example of a handball that's not a penalizable handball and, you know, if the, if, if the match officials don't know the rules, I, I, I think we're in trouble. That, that, that's a real concern. Like, I understand that there are a load of decisions that are subjective, et cetera, et cetera. Those two fall into the very, very obvious category. And that, to me, is a, is a big concern. Before we wrap up the French side of this conversation and get on to Denmark, are they still favourites? 
I'm not convinced they ever were, to be honest. Even though they're the, the, the holders, I just feel Brazil have maybe got a better defence than them. And that's what I've always felt. Obviously, the Neymar thing has an influence over it. I mean, look, a load of people while I was out in Doha said to me, look, can you imagine a, a France-Brazil final? It doesn't really matter who the favourites are. That would just be an incredible final. What do you think, JJ? Yeah, I think it would be an incredible final. I'm not sure that PSG would be delighted with that outcome, given that it would be <laughs> Neymar and Mbappe going up against each other for the biggest prize in football. But I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I mean, in, ter in terms of a spectacle, it would be fantastic. But I totally agree with you. I don't think that many people really, truly considered France to be favourites coming into this one. Too much has changed since 2018. You know, France's form hasn't been particularly convincing. Uh, you know, obviously they were dumped out uh, unexpectedly at the Euros as well at the hands of Switzerland. Uh, you know, and their qualification campaign, you know, still had, uh, you know, it was littered with a, a bunch of blotchy performances as well. It's been a while since we were really, truly convinced by France. And I think that's why so many people were impressed, uh, you know, with the way that they've performed since conceding that opening goal against Australia and then through the game against Denmark. But as we saw, uh, you know, with that, uh, with that loss to, to Tunisia, that, that confidence, that, that chemistry, that momentum is very, very fragile. And for that reason alone, I, I think that France are not uh, amongst the favourites. I, I certainly think that Brazil and Argentina certainly seem to have built themselves up more to win this mentally uh, coming into the tournament than France. Yeah, we've uh, alluded to this already. Incredible to see Australia through to the knockout stages for the first time since 2006 and just the second time in their history. And the scenes down under, I do know about this because I was talking to a colleague um, who was in Sydney yesterday. The scenes down under have been mad. Uh, they've reflected the fact that this is history. But their progress, of course, came at the expense of Denmark. Which one of us had Denmark as their dark horse, Andy? I think it's uh, all down to sealed predictions. So uh, yeah. you, you'll never know. Well, you will know. You will know in a couple of weeks. It was me. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I, I, finished, um, I finished Turkey last year and I've, yeah. I finished Denmark this year, which is possibly an even better yeah. effort. <laughs> that is a record, actually. Thank you very fin. much. Oh, you, you won't know what I've got on my sleeve for the Euros. Wait, wait till 2024. Yeah, not me. England, for goodness sake. <laughs> but um, yeah, whatever happened to Denmark then? Because this... This tournament unraveled um, to show them at perhaps their actual level. Well, I, I guess that's the question because I think when projecting forward and looking at how good Denmark were before the start of the tournament, it was clear the back part of the team going up to the midfield is great, that they didn't have a world-class striker. I don't think it was reasonable to imagine it would affect them quite as as much as it did. And um, Christian Eriksen said to me when I was speaking to him after the game against France, our big problem is we can't score. And well, I mean, that actually turned out to be the case against Australia. You know, it was easier for Australia than it should have been. Obviously, Andreas Cornelius missed one, one big one. They started with Martin Brathwaite, which I think was the, the right pick from Kasper Hulmant. But, you know, they don't have an extraordinary amount of of options up front, which is which is a huge issue. And another thing I think for them, and I asked both Ericsson and um, Joachim Anderson about this at various points in the tournament, I said to them, well, if you go back to the start of the Euros, speak, speak to some Danish players beforehand, there's a genuine belief 
that they could do something, a quiet confidence that they could do something. But the difference is, no one else believed. The difference is this time, other people believed. Lots of people had Denmark as their, their dark horses, more than Turkey, I might point out. Um, and th I think that creates a different pressure. Now, both of them, when I asked that question, absolutely dodged it. They, they didn't really want to talk about it. But I think, you know, JJ was talking about the psychological side before. I think the pressure they put on themselves was evident from that very, very first game against Tunisia. Jonathan? Yeah, and I think as well that Tunisia game really took them by surprise because with all due respect to the Tunisians, I think many people were looking at them as potentially being the third or fourth team in the group. So for them to then mm. go and hold uh, you know, Denmark was a, was a big shock. But I, I do agree with Andy. Unfortunately, I, I would say great minds think alike because I, uh, I went for... Uh, for Denmark as my dark horses this time and Turkey last time. So, uh, you know, that obviously didn't work out for either yeah. of us. Yeah. But I, do, I do agree about Denmark in terms of their, their dearth of attacking talent. And I think it's it's really frustrating as well because obviously there was a lot of expectation that Dolberg, you know, would perhaps become one of the next big things, uh, you know, in terms of attacking talent. He's never quite, uh, you know, added that consistency to his game that, uh, you know, his club teams and his national team really require. But, you know, I think as well, you know, you can't underestimate the, the absence of Simon Chiara as well. Normally the captain who had injury problems in this tournament, having his experience on the pitch. I'm not saying that would have solved things going forward. But, you know, there were certain key moments where, you know, it just, you know, things didn't fall right for Denmark. I mean, think back to the game against France. If Hugo Lloris doesn't make an absolutely world-class save, perhaps Denmark go 2-1 up and actually win that game. And then they're still in the World Cup. So there were some sort of sliding door moments uh, you know for Denmark in this competition but that lack of firepower up front uh, you know does seem like it's perhaps going to cost them an opportunity to really make an impact uh, you know at uh, one of these international tournaments in the future. Yeah USA was my dark horse um, so much for brilliant minds eh? <laughs> What about Spain? Are they a realistic prospect to win this tournament or not? And they blow hot and cold, Andy. You know, one game you see them and they're the most efficient pass and move team there is. May not need a centre forward, but they've got one just in case and they do one of it. The next game, they look as if they're struggling. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it works out in the third game against Japan. And bear in mind, even though I would peg Spain as still one of the favourites for the tournament. Not not the absolute favourites, but one of one of the handful of teams that could win it, I would say, that have the ability and maybe have the the, the plan to win it. They could go out if they get the the, the wrong result against Japan. As so we speak. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's let's not count any chickens. You know, m maybe you are watching you are listening to this in the future and you know you can you can nod sagely to this or, or whatever. I think they benefit on one hand from the fact that they do have a depth of talent and they do have options but we talked about certain types of player in the in, in the France team being in that galaxy of talent few and far between but particularly with France due to injury concerns at left back the thing with Spain is the only authentic center forward is Alvaro Morata mm. that is the big issue and they don't really quite need to decide yet do they go all in, it, all in on him for the, for the rest of the tournament? I think they probably do for what it's worth because 
you know, as as you were saying the other day when we were talking about it with Miguel off the back of Spain, Germany, he made a big impact in the Costa Rica game. He made a big impact in the Germany game in a very, very different situation. Mm-hmm. And just because he's got so many transferable skills, he is not just a target man. We're not talking about Germany bringing on Nicolas Fulkrug. He's got so many elements to his game. Now, JJ was talking about Dolberg and consistency at a far higher level. That is the issue with Morata. And it has always been the issue with Morata. However, he has had a good season and he's had a very, very good last year, year and a half with the Spanish national team as as well. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You look at his key contributions. You look at uh, the Euros last year. You look at the goal he scored to put them through to the final four of the Nations League in combination with Nico Williams mm. in the um in in the deciding game with 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 Portugal in Braga a Portuguese team who played them off the pitch for 60 minutes and they still found a way to recover and score that goal so i think luis enrique has already looked ahead and i think sort of presupposed of a few of the things that might be a problem for them so for example putting rodri at center back i think has been mm-hmm. the thing the fact that he himself has stepped in to make up for the fact that there's not as much experience, perhaps, as, as you would want, certainly in that in that first team, give or, give or take Sergio Busquets. It feels like he is taking the weight off the players in a great way because, of course, there have been chat before the tournament about do they need to call up Sergio Ramos now he's playing again to add that little bit of experience. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. I am going to lead the team. And he's done it in a very demonstrative way. You know, there are a few issues related to experience. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I, I feel quite strongly that they, they need to pin a lot on Morata. Yeah, part of the problem for the Spanish team is a veteran like Sergio Ramos is, well, not in the team anymore. He was a, a staple for that team. He was a standard and he's not there. He's doing well for PSG. Why on earth are they not using him in this World Cup? Surely that would give the confidence to, you know, uh, the back line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a very valid point. Uh, you know, Ramos is, uh, you know, really enjoying a, a new lease of life with PSG. In fact, um, just recently he set a new record, I think, where he's gone unbeaten for 30 matches or something, his first 30 games uh, with PSG. Uh, you know, and he's really put his physical issues behind him. You know, he's redeveloped uh, that dominant form that we you know associated with him or something close to that dominant form that we associated with him in his, at his absolute peak uh, with Real Madrid uh, so I don't think it would have been that much of a, a gamble for Luis Enrique to take him in fact I was surprised because if I remember correctly Gerard Piquet before his abrupt retirement was actually on the expanded Spanish roster that would potentially go to the World Cup so I was staggered that Sergio Ramos didn't even make that uh, that cut at the time because, you know, he is very clearly, you know, one of the key voices, one of the key influences at PSG, uh, you know, is very well respected by all of the players within that squad. And obviously there's you know, quite a lot of, uh, you know, big egos there. So having somebody, a real champion like Sergio Ramos, when he's actually able to, to contribute something on the pitch as well, uh, you know, I do I do have to, to question that from uh, from Luis Enrique. In terms of the direction they've gone since, it might have felt like a bit of a backward step, especially as as JJ says, he's such an enormously influential dressing room figure. Now, of course, that can be an incredibly positive thing, but does it uh, upset the equilibrium 
that you've spent a while putting into place. It, it does undoubtedly alter the dynamic. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can get away from that. And I think he's, he's happy to, to lead the way. Now, whether that will come back to bite them in terms of what they, they have or don't have in terms of experience in the pitch, I, I, only time will tell. But I understand why he's made that decision or not made that decision, as the case may be. I think it's fair to say time has told on Belgium's uh, golden generation. Will they get out of this group stage is obviously the, the imminent question for you, JJ. Um, and also... <laughs> What would their legacy be, essentially? Because they're struggling at the moment, aren't they? I saw an interesting quote the other day from Roberto Martinez. He was asked about Belgium's legacy. And he said, you don't need to, <clears throat> to win a tournament to leave a strong legacy. I mean, I think when you've got a generation of players as talented as Belgium's, uh, you know, when you've been talked up uh, as potential winners of, of titles and, you know, you fall short and the best that they can sort of hold up is a third place finish at the 2018 World Cup. Uh, you know, I do think that you need to, to leave some sort of, uh, you know, tangible legacy. Uh, and I think I mean, what I find really fascinating about this uh, this game between Croatia and Belgium is it's essentially a shootout, especially for the Belgians, between two of the top three teams from the 2018 edition. Obviously, Belgium came third and Croatia were runners-up to France. But it, it really does feel like the end of the road for a lot of these Belgian uh, stars. And I think the thing that's so staggering about it is, despite the fact that they are getting on, some of those guys could still have at least one international tournament in them. But the way that they play on the pitch, the way that they look, you know, it, it looks like you know they're already at the end of uh, you know their, their their careers at the top level, which you know I find staggering. I do think as well there's this bewildering uh, insistence from Martinez to not bring in. Uh, you know, certain members of the, the new generation as well, like Trossard, for example, who's having a fantastic season with Belgium, uh, but, uh, with Brighton, yeah. barely getting a look in for Belgium. Mm. <laughs> very, very strange decisions. Germany, though, um, whew, it's a strange Germany at this World Cup. They're about to face Costa Rica, or should I do it in the Chris Waddle way and say Costa Rica? Um, and you wonder though, which Germany will show up here? You know, we, we've seen two different Germanys, I'd have thought. This Very world. different. Very, Very different. different. Yeah. I, I agree. And, um, you know, Miguel was talking about how they uh, had that extra bit of solidity, um, muscle, almost brutality in that game against Spain. I would say that there's lots around Germany who would see that as an enormous compliment. Uh, I think he described them as brutality plus Musiala, which I thought was a great description. And you, you know what? That, that They will be delighted because I think if you look at Germany, they just simply do not produce players like that anymore. So for them to find some sort of solidity, if they can build on that last half hour against Spain, they'll win this game against Costa Rica. They'll get themselves through to... The next round, how far they go after that, I've, as you know, as we've said on here for months, Dotton, I don't think Germany will get very far in this mm-hmm. this tournament. Mm-hmm. I think they are behind Spain by some distance in moulding their talent into a genuine team with a genuine plan. However, I, I felt that that game against Spain could be the start of something. And someone pointed out to me that in 2002, a Germany team that started very shakily and that on paper certainly was far weaker than this one, actually made it all the way to the, the final. Now, I don't think they have that, that sort of resolve in them to make it all that way. But I didn't think they had the resolve on them to 
grind out that game against Spain. And, and they did manage to. So, you know, we'll wait and see whether that was a flash in the pan or whether it's something they can, they can repeat. Of course, there's only two of us in this conversation who've got brilliant minds. So what says the other one? I'm not sore, by the way. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I think as well, uh, with Germany, what I'm curious to see now is whether moving forward, Hansi Flick almost reinvents the wheel a little bit because we haven't seen Germany play with a target man for a long, long time now. You know, obviously we all have... Well, I'm not going to say fond memories. We all have memories of Carsten Janker and that sort of era, <laughs> era of the German national team. But I find it fascinating that they got bailed out by the kind of profile of player that they really haven't called upon much over the last uh, you know, decade or so. So now I do think that there is a lot of young talent in this in, in the German ranks sort of waiting to, to explode. And obviously Musiala you know, could be uh, you know, a key player for them for, for, for years uh, to come. But, uh, you know, I do, I do think as well, you know, Hansi Flick has now seen a glimpse of what Germany could be if they change their approach slightly. So I'm curious to see, I mean, assuming that they do make it into the knockout phase, I, I share Andy's pessimism. Perhaps this will be a preparation for them, uh, you know, to get, uh, you know, ready for future tournaments. But, uh, you know, I do think as well, if they've stumbled upon something new, you know, perhaps they could get a bit of joy there and make a run to at least the quarterfinals. It sounds like Jonathan agrees that um, Germany have lost their bark a little. Well, I was going to say, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.